The reading is by Gerald Winokur. And this is really touching to me, and many of you will have had some experiences that are similar to this. The 91-year-old woman fell in her garage. There was no reason for her to be in the garage. The car had been sold after her husband had died of Alzheimer's nine years before, and she couldn't drive anyway. Her macular degeneration was bad enough that she could barely make out anything on the TV unless she sat two feet away and tilted her head just so. But the washer and dryer were in the garage, just a few steps off the kitchen in the little house that she loved, her home of 40 years. It was so easy to go through the door into the garage and start something in the washer, her delicates especially. She didn't like anybody else washing these. Even though she had caring help almost every day, she ignored the warnings of everyone and would from time to time go into the garage. The primary care doctor she'd been seeing for years and who knew about her hypertension, her, hypertension, her diabetes, her stroke five years prior, and who had prescribed all of her medications, no longer saw his patients every day in the hospital. An orthopedist surgically stabilized her hip the next morning after she fell. And because her respiration and blood oxygen saturation were problematic, and at the urgent of, <coughs> urging of one of her worried sons, the one who happened to be a geriatrician, she was moved into the intensive care unit. Hopefully all will go well, the surgeon said as he acquiesced. Now, in addition to the surgeon, there was a hospitalist and an intensive care specialist involved. The patient did not know them and had no role in choosing them. It was not apparent who ordered the chest x-ray for the next morning and despite her fever, coughing, and low uh, blood oxygen levels, no one viewed the film until the son, worried that his mother was dying, asked 12 years or 12 hours later when it when it showed up. A lower left lobe pneumonia had bloomed, and antibiotics were finally and sheepishly given. Meanwhile, the old woman hovered between this world and the next. Through her oxygen mask, she spoke to loved ones long departed. The television that hung from the ceiling across the room flickered continuously, but she could not see it. One day, the president spoke on the news about personalized medicine and precision medicine. He did not make a distinction between them. But whatever they were, the DNA, computers, and the other technologies seemed to be involved and they were going to revolutionize healthcare for everyone in the country. Every two hours, a blood pressure cuff left continuously in, in place inflated. Numbers were recorded. The electrocardiograph was continuously monitored. Alarms regularly pierced the solitude, torturous to the patient and the family members nearby. But no one came to silence them unless the call button on the, bed, on the bed was triggered. The patient, blind and sick, could never find the correct spot to push the multifunctional device that lay somewhere tangled up in the sheets. 
No one came to give the old woman a bed bath for more than a week. No one repositioned her. No one came in the middle of the night to put a hand on her forehead or to ask, are you able to sleep? Are you in pain? Can I get you anything? When asked about this, more than one nurse said, we used to do all of those things, but there's no longer any time. Sometimes it seemed as if the only personalized medicine my mother received over the two months before she came home, frail and batter-worn, was when my brother or I brought a spoon with ice chips to her lips after she requested it. Such is the state of medical care for many of the elderly in our best hospitals. Aside from spending untold dollars mapping the genomes of Americans, we must, once again, learn to provide true personalized care to everyone in the soon-to-be 72 million geriatric patients in our midst. While not scientifically precise, nurturing in caregivers the skilled application of compassion and empathy it takes to do this work well in the end will benefit us all. I chose that reading and I was not trying to bum you all out. I was trying, hoping that it would resound with many of you. And for those of you who have not yet had to sit bedside, to get an idea of what it's like and why anyone, even if you're 40, who goes into a hospital needs to have somebody there advocating for you all the time. Charity begins at home. It begins with each of us. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the Affordable Care Act. I'm happy that more people can have insurance, but it still comes down to us caring for each other. Charity Begins at Home is not a biblical quote. It's not even a Buddhist or a Taoist quote. It first appeared in print in the 17th century. Sir Thomas Brown was the first to put the expression into print in the form we now use in a publication called Religio Medici in 1642. And the, the exact quote was, but how shall we expect charity toward others when we are uncharitable toward ourselves? Charity begins at home. So last February, I went to Virginia for three weeks, and I kept turning over this phrase in my head and thinking about it and reading about the word charity and what the phrase means. Uh, my dad's going to be 90 in March, and... I knew I was going to be taking this sabbatical, and so I took three weeks to get my house in order. And it's taken from February until now to process what happened, and I want to share it with you all. And I use that phrase, charity begins at home, as my meditation. It is so often incorrectly used in political settings. For instance, when the U.S. is going to send foreign aid to somebody, and the people who don't wish for that to happen will combat the move by saying charity begins at home. Their meaning is help us here, don't send our money somewhere else. Another thing about this saying is that while charity or love may begin at home, 
is not meant to stay there. <coughs> Love that is taught at home will change the world as it spreads out to the community and then wider. The third part of the discovery, as I pondered this saying, is the common problem that we have because of the internet. We only learn one part of a phrase, and so we take the part that we want to prove our point, and we don't actually look at the whole thing in context. The full quote from back in 1642, again, is, but how shall we expect charity toward others when we are uncharitable to ourselves? Charity begins at home. So really, Brown meant that we must love ourselves in order to love our neighbors. This, friends, is a hard task. I'm not talking about entitled buying for ourselves. I'm talking about real care. We are demanding of ourselves. We beat ourselves up for things that if somebody else did, we would forgive. We don't extend love to our neighbors, either because we're busy or they annoy us, or we think that they don't really want our help. We can't love our unlovable neighbors because they possess a flaw that we know to suffer from ourselves, or maybe we fear that we suffer from. It is easier to look outwardly with disdain than to look inwardly. It brings to mind a phrase that is biblical. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? This is more in line with our study today. Charity begins at home. Let's figure out how do we bring more love into the world. May it begin with ourselves, with our own homes, with our own families. Going home is a concept that we use widely. It might be daily or it might involve international travel, maybe some of us went home for Thanksgiving. Maybe somebody came home for Thanksgiving. But the concept of going home can happen any time. Charity is not giving somebody a handout. It means treating one with love and compassion, even ourselves. Using Greek translations like scholars would have in 1642, love and charity are interchangeable. Charity is about love and compassion more than generosity of funds or goods. So when charity begins at home, it means that love begins there. It means that love begins with us so that we can take care of our family. To pull our lens out a bit further, take the strain off of us for a moment, Let's look at um, months and months ago, back in February, the president had issued um, a statement about our American Muslims. And I keep thinking about that in light of so many horrible tragedies recently. President Obama said that one sure way to beat the ISIS terrorists is to embrace our own Muslims and let them know that we understand the difference between somebody who is lovingly practicing submission to their God and somebody who is bastardizing the word Muslim to suit their fanatical, murderous political plans. If we practice love at home, then we can carry that charity, that love, much further. Love is love. Whether we're making amends with a troublesome family member or showing compassion to an entire beleaguered group, 
We must get right with ourselves. This wisdom shows up in every religion and philosophy throughout time. Serving as a parish minister for an extended time has taught me a lot about myself and about the Michiana community I serve. Did you know about the word Michiana? Okay, I thought it was kind of interesting when I first moved there. But what I've learned with Elkhart, I can translate pretty much anywhere I go. The biggest lesson as a pastor was, how could I give charity to others until I get my own home in order? Being on sabbatical gives me time to reflect and feel things that I don't always give myself time to process. My heart is heavy with the funerals that I have officiated over these last couple of years. We are a growing congregation. We do have young people and young families, but we're also burying our sages. The Elkhart congregation is only 50 years old, so we still have founders. Every celebration of life is a gift and an honor. It gives me pause to consider the sacredness of life and to honor the individual, to minister to the loved ones left behind. But I have to say it's changed from when I was at seminary and when I was first learning how to do celebrations of life 15 years ago. I'm happy that I've stayed put. I hope that you and your minister have a long relationship. But I've grown to know my people so well that now when somebody dies, it's more like I've lost a beloved uncle or a quirky aunt. I still honor their life. I minister to their loved ones. But now I feel that loss personally, too. It's one of the pieces of longtime ministry they don't tell you about. I recall a day years ago when one of our sages, who is trained in hospice volunteer work, and we basically think he's a saint, said, I'm comfortable with my own death, and I'm comfortable with all of yours, too. What a gift. I strive to reach that place. This has all caused much introspection, as you can tell. Between last February, being on sabbatical, I have a lot of thoughts about this. Previously in my ministry, the empathy was always for other people, and this year I am extending this charity to myself, realizing that I feel lost too. I've always cared about the people I honor, but it makes sense that the longer we know someone, and maybe you all are thinking about congregants right now. You've known them for a long time. Some of you have been in this church, I know, for a long time. The more shared experience we have, the deeper the feelings of loss will be. And the circle of love and care keeps growing. More recently, each time I talk with adult children of senior parents, afterwards, I reflect on my own family of origin. And so last Christmas this time, I realized that for charity to begin at home, I would need to be present, that I needed to go and hang out with him and determine whether my sabbatical was going to be six months of hanging with dad. My siblings and I needed to gather and rally around our dad and be more intentional about his goals. Have any of you all had this meeting with your parents or your children? 
state those goals. He'll be 90 on March 20th, and he plans to continue aging in place, staying in his home and not in a facility. While he's mostly in good health, it's a concern that he's by himself. And he didn't have a plan in place, clearly communicated among us. There are five kids and five spouses, and this bothered me to think that unless we got on the same page right now, that we might have our first family meeting after he died. Basically, my question was, how can I extend love as a pastor to these other families until I understand what's happening in my own life? And so off to Virginia I went. And here's what I learned. It's about spreading love to the world. Charity begins at home with yourself before you can extend it. Caregivers can only give the time and effort possible with no feelings of guilt or remorse for time spent taking care of the caregiver. You know how you've been taking care of somebody every day and you go and get your nails done and that's the day you run into someone and they say, oh, I thought you were taking care of so-and-so. Or you finally take a break to go see a show somewhere and that's when you run into the sibling that hasn't been helping. You know, you all know what I'm talking about. An empty vessel gives no solace. We have to take care of ourselves. And if you live alone and you need help, even if it's just a daily phone call, love yourself. Love your church family enough to ask for help. People join faith communities to be in community. So, I know, I know you use all over, Virginia, Maine, Midwest, all over, and I know that we're strong, but we're also broken. And so if you have a thought in your mind, like, you know, maybe somebody should call me every day and make sure I woke up, state that. If you have somebody in the congregation that it worries you and you don't see them, make sure that you call them. It's not a really big deal. It doesn't have to be a terribly organized thing to take care of each other. Communication is key and honesty is essential. Take on only what you're really willing to do so that resentment doesn't take root. Respect others who do the same. If you're willing to do a lot and someone else is not, respect what they are willing to do. Honor the real arrangements and stop wishing for what you can't have. Love yourself, be charitable with yourself, and especially when you are mired in caring for someone else. Well, the second point, because that was all just one point. (laughs) The second point is about those who care for our seniors besides us. This is an area of social justice. Maybe some of you are CNAs. Do we have any in the house? Certified nursing assistant? Great. Or maybe you employ one. Does anyone have someone working for you or a loved one? I do. In the US, we don't have a good social infrastructure to support the sandwich generation. I'm in that generation. Are any of you still caring for kids and caring for parents? We don't have a good social infrastructure 
Not every family will be able to take in their elderly, and not every senior wants that arrangement. My dad doesn't want to leave Virginia. This means that seniors are more often than not going to live alone, or they're going to live in a senior facility, and so most of us will either know or be employed as direct care workers. The SCAN Foundation, Senior Care, which endeavors to help seniors age in place, that's a phrase I learned last year, aging in place, uh, they help seniors age in place with dignity. They have great reading material. It's Senior Care Association Network, S-C-A-N. Um, according to their comprehensive 2011 study, they'll do another one in 2016, the people we pay to care for our loved ones are not always treated justly. In 1844, Charles Dickens said that charity begins at home and justice begins next door. As of this 2011 study, there are almost 3 million direct care workers in the U.S. who work with seniors. Do you think that these are like 20-year-olds? Do you think these are people who are in college earning extra money? What kind of care workers do you see? The median age is 42 years old. 89% are female. 53% are non-white. 43% live under the poverty level. And in 2011, before the Affordable Care Act, 900,000 had no health insurance for themselves. These non-familial caregivers deserve a living wage, and many of these positions, like CNA or health, home health aid, are often not paid just, just wages to care for those we cannot. Examining the hiring practices of healthcare agencies and questioning their employees is time consuming. I spent three weeks at home because we had to interview somebody. The first one didn't work out. We had to find the second one. I wanted to be there for two or three visits before I left again. It takes time. It's not always comfortable. It must be done. First, it's not fair to pay people less than a living wage, so keep looking until a fair agency can be found. Second, human nature is human nature. I do believe that people are good. I am a universalist. I think we're all saved. I think we're all trying our best. But human nature is human nature. Do you want somebody to feel disrespected or resentful when they are caring for your senior family member? Charity begins at home. Justice begins next door. The third piece that I can share with you at this time is making sure that love does begin at home. Charity, which is loving compassion, can look like filling out paperwork. It can look like visiting during a meal. It could look like running an errand or sitting for a quiet afternoon or being that second pair of ears at a doctor's visit. Are you all in the practice of taking somebody with you to a doctor's visit? You should be. As you heard earlier, I'm not even 50 yet. I make sure I take someone with me 
that I got all the facts right because I'm pretty busy and I could hear something wrong. In my case last February, practicing love and compassion meant watching YouTube polka videos <laughs> over and over and over. What does love look like in your home? Is it filling out paperwork? Is it running and buying embarrassing things? Is it going to the doctor's office? What does it look like? What does it look like in the home of someone you love? As we welcome in refugees, what is that gonna look like? Don't waste a lot of time looking for sawdust in the eyes of others, thinking about how neglectful some people are when the plank in our own eye keeps us from giving time and care to our own. If you miss seeing somebody, don't assume for them that they're too busy. How many of us have heard, and you don't have to raise your hands because I know it's all of us. I don't want to call them because I know they're really busy and I don't want to ask them to come over for dinner because it'll just be a strain on them. Right? Ask them anyway. Give them the respect of choosing to say yes or no. <coughs> My parting hope and wish is this. Let there be love and compassion in your life that starts with you, extends to those in your home, in your family, and then bubbles over into the world. Just as I pulled that lens back and I thought about these senior caregivers as well as my own senior, as I pulled the lens back and let myself feel neglectful, as I pulled the lens back and looked at the whole picture, I thought about all of these things to come to you the Sunday after Thanksgiving, when we're in a refugee crisis, when we're in a senior care crisis, when everything seems like crisis. And I wanted to say to you that the love and the careful cultivation of charity will be our salvation. Love is a renewable resource. It can be found and grown and reproduced everywhere. It's the strongest force in the world. It always has been, it always will be. Love begins inside us, it spills out, and it pours into the world. So may it always be.